Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm thankful every week. This is a highlight of my week to share uh, the Word of God with you and to have songs being played and us exalting the Lord in our hearts. And it's a wonderful, wonderful Sunday, every Sunday, that we get to open up God's Word and listen to God's music as this music exalts the Lord Himself. I'm sure that you have enjoyed that as well. Uh, if you will turn with me, we're going to enter into the portion of our service, portion of our worship, in which we're exalting God through the listening to God's word. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and today we're in verse 14 through 17. Matthew chapter 9, and we're in verses 14 through 17. Yeah. So when you're there, when you turn there, let's read these four verses together. Verse 14 it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unstrung cloth on the old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Let's bow in the word of, God, uh, bow in the word of prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to come and worship you, to give you glory, to exalt you in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, to listen to your word to listen to your songs, Lord, to know that you are Lord over all, in all situations, all circumstances of our lives, that you're leading us and guiding us, especially as we're going to listen to you in this passage. We know, Lord, that you're working our lives beyond our imagination, beyond our thoughts, beyond our expectations, for our good. So, Lord, may we abandon all and follow you, God, because following you is better than anything else or following anything else in this world. Lord, let us exalt you now, Lord, Holy Spirit, working our hearts to help us see more of you in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes in order to fix the problems of our lives, we need to completely get rid of the problem itself. Completely get rid of the source of the problem, that is. This week, what has happened to us and our family is that we had an AC leak in our roof. This AC leak is coming from the evaporator in our roof, uh, or in our attic, that is. Most houses now, they place the evaporator in their attic. But if your AC is old, what will happen is that evaporator will begin to leak. And when it leaks, you'll begin to leak water onto your ceiling and from that point from the, from into your walls. And as long as your ceilings and walls are wet, then begin to destroy the ceiling and the walls. And what will happen is that mold will start to grow and it will destroy well, anyone who, the health of anyone who lives in that house. So what we've been doing this past week has been, has been a time of reconstruction for us. We, people have come and they're um, knocking down the walls, knocking down the ceiling, checking for mold, checking for different wet spots, making sure that all the parts of the ceiling that need to be knocked down is knocked down. It is a grand work for us because we had to leave the house and we, the insurance is going to pay for part of it. However, the insurance is not going to pay for all of it and still going to cost us quite a bit to fix the house. All this came from a broken AC. Now the AC has been 
kind of fidgety for a very long time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, and it's been difficult for us. And for me, I didn't want to spend money on a whole new AC, so a lot of times what I would do is I would go up there, place, replace little parts, replace the motor, trying to finagle with things, get it to work. And once it works, I would say, you know what, let's not touch it, let's get it to work. And once it's working, then maybe it'll continue to work. Now, anybody can see that this 20-year-old AC is about to break. I mean, it's a 20-year-old AC. Things are breaking different places. Anybody can know that time has come for me to completely get rid of this AC so that you will not cause more problems. But I didn't want to spend the money to fix the problem. I just want to kind of fandango with it, kind of patch things up. Now, if I know that it's going to cause a whole big issue of water leaking to our house, I would have replaced the AC a long time ago. But it's too late. It's caused this problem. Now I have to fix the house as well as get a brand new AC. It's going to cost a lot more money than if I just initially start off with getting rid of the problem itself, the AC. Certainly, when we deal with the problems of this world, we are kind of approaching it with the same attitude. The problems of this world are the brokennesses of which we see in this world. The brokennesses which we see in the world are severe. They're difficult. The brokennesses such as, well, murder, genocide, oppression of people groups. There's certain brokennesses in this world that we don't want to see. We don't want it to happen. Sex trafficking, child trafficking, different kind of things that are very, very difficult for this world to endure. And we want these brokennesses gone. We want to have these brokennesses eliminated from this world. However, the way we eliminate it is simply by patching up the problem itself. How do we do it? We act, we participate in activism, we protest, which are good things. Right? We give money to organizations that seemingly to fight against these problems, which are good things. We should be aware of the brokennesses are in this world, the effects of the sins, the effects of sin which are happening in this world. However, what we're going to find is that there's something fueling the brokennesses of this world. There's something that's forever continue pushing forward to have more brokenness exhibited in this world, and that is a problem of the human heart. You see, every single brokenness which we see in this world comes from the heart attitude of sin. We all have sin in our lives. Sin is what fuels brokennesses in this world. As we're experiencing brokennesses in this world, the only way to eradicate brokennesses, to eradicate these effects of sin, which we don't want to see in this world, which I just mentioned, is by completely eradicating sin. And God has the same plan. He has, to, he has a plan to eradicate sin from this world. However, in order for sin to be completely eradicated, the only way which sin can be eradicated is by eradicating the sinner. Because you simply cannot eradicate sin without eradicating what generates sin. And the fact that sin is generated from the heart of the sinner. So every person will have to be eradicated from this world in order for this person, or in order for this world to be purified again. Certainly God has a plan to do that. Because God, who is holy and just, and who forever lives in holiness, desires for this world to return to the purity in which he created it to be. But that will involve eradicating us. And what that plan is, is the final judgment, the great white throne judgment where all sinners will be one day thrown into eternal hell, where they will be not able to generate sin anymore, where they'll be forever under the wrath of God. That's one way to eradicate sin. However, God loves us and cares for us and he designed for another way to eradicate sin in this world without eradicating the sinner, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. He came and paid for the penalty of our sins. He came and died on the cross to be the righteousness which we cannot have and gave that righteousness to us. God judged His Son, Jesus, instead of judging us. 
And by judging His Son, Jesus Christ, we are escaping that judgment which we deserve. We get to be made pure because Jesus gave us purity. We get to be made right. We get to be made righteous before God because Jesus Christ gave us His righteousness. And through that, Jesus make us pure. Jesus made us pure, made us righteous. And through that, we get to be restored back to God. And one day, Jesus is coming again, in which we will be inheriting a new body, a new resurrected body, in which we we'll never ever sin. Will be lifted to the heaven, which will live forever with the Lord. When that day happens. Sin will be completely eradicated. But we will be with the Lord. We will live forever in eternal joy with the Lord. That is the salvation in what Jesus is offering us. God loves us. He does not want to eradicate us. He does not want to throw us eternal punishment into hell. So therefore, He offered His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment for us. However, it takes for us to believe unto Him. It takes for us to trust in the name of Jesus Christ and believe unto the name of Jesus in order for that salvation to be made ours. So therefore, throughout the Bible and throughout the book of Matthew, what we're going to find is that Jesus is calling us to believe. He loves us. He wants us to be His. He wants us to live forever with the Lord. So therefore, He's calling us to believe in Himself so that we can escape the judgment of God. This is what He's preaching here also in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 17. God is calling us to believe, to abandon all and follow Him with all of our lives. In this world... What we just said is that people want to reduce, eliminate the effects of sin, the brokennesses of this world by patching things up without dealing with the issue of sin with the heart itself. But that is an utter impossibility. We simply cannot shake free from the effects of sin without dealing with sin itself. But Jesus Christ came and dealt with sin by dying on the cross for our sins. And today he's calling us to believe. And so today here in this passage, we're going to see this exactly. We're called to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we are to do, as we're going to see in this passage, is to abandon all rote religious rituals for a relationship with God. We're called to abandon all mechanical religious rituals. If you have religious rituals in your life that you follow, do you think that if you think that if you follow these religious rituals, that's what gets you to heaven? Jesus is calling us following Him, means that you're going to abandon all religious rituals for a relationship. Let's read here from verse 14 to verse 15. And let's dive into this, the time of days of Jesus. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. So in the setting of Jesus, as he's coming to the ministry here in a city around the Sea of Galilee, he's been presenting to all that he is a Savior, the Messiah. He's a Savior of the world. He's the one to come to save the people from their sins. And the way which you can be saved from your sins is by simply crying out to God unto the Lord as your Savior. You must first recognize that you're a sinner. You must recognize the sin in you and beg God for grace, beg God for mercy. And God gives grace and mercy to those who ask for mercy. And this is true because last week what we saw is that Jesus said, I came for sinners, not the righteous. He came for sinners. You must first recognize that you're a sinner in order for the salvation to be available to you. You recognize the sin in your heart, there's jealousy, there's hatred, there's all kinds of sin in your heart. And therefore, when you recognize that, you know that you deserve nothing but hell. And then Jesus Christ says, if you deserve that, if you know you deserve that, come to me, I will make you whole. That is the pathway of salvation. That is the only pathway of salvation. 
However, in the days of Jesus, people are used to approaching God differently. We saw this also in our study in the first century Judaism. People are approaching God differently. They're approaching God by their works. There's a lot of religious works. Compared to our setting, we may not understand exactly what's happening, but in the ancient Israel, there's a lot of religious work happening, and those religious work is what people trusted for their salvation. They trusted their religious work for their salvation. In Matthew chapter 5, we saw what kind of religious work that people trusted. They trusted in fasting. They trusted in praying. They also trusted in giving. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting, nothing wrong with praying, nothing wrong with giving. In fact, those things done out of relationship with God is often, it's very, very good. It's very, very good. But these people, instead of doing it from a relationship with God, they were doing it from a way of reaching God. They were thinking that as long as they can do these things perfectly, really, really good, then God shall see them as perfect. God shall accept them into the heavenly, His heavenly presence. So they were doing it. They were trying to do a really good job. And they were actually presenting themselves to be really, really good people in front of other people. So they were doing these things in front of other people. We saw this in Matthew chapter 5. They were giving, but they were giving in front of people. They were saying, you know what, if I can give in front of people and and I receive accolades from other people, certainly I should make myself feel pretty good about myself. They were praying. They were praying in front of people and people were giving accolades to them. They were fasting, they were fasting in front of people, and people were giving accolades to them. They would come in the fast that we saw during the market days, that's Monday and Thursday, and they would put ashes on their head, put mark, uh, makeup on their faces, and by doing that, people would think very, very well of them. And somehow, doing this, in this religious culture, in this religious setting, this religious hierarchy, they're at the top. As long as they're at the top, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. As they felt pretty good about themselves, they felt that maybe God should also feel pretty good about them. They're translating this accolades which they're receiving from people onto God. Saying, you know what, if we're receiving accolades from people, praises from people, certainly we shall be receiving praises from God. God should accept us into his heavenly abode. But that is not at all the case. They were completely wrong. As Jesus presents himself, he's saying that God actually looks at the heart. He does not look at your external. You can do your externals, but your heart does not match who you are externally. Then you are a hypocrite. All of your hearts are evil. The Pharisees' hearts are evil. Our hearts are evil as well. All of people's hearts are evil. But then when the Pharisees started doing these religious rituals, thinking themselves it's pretty good, they're committing the sin of hypocrisy. The outside does not match who they are on the inside. The only way to fight hypocrisy, the only way to overcome hypocrisy, as Jesus teaches, is by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaiming Him as your Lord and Savior. When He cleanses your heart, gives you a relationship with God, then out of the relationship with God, as you fast, as you give, as you pray, then you're not a hypocrite because your inside actually matches who you are on the outside. Now, Jesus fought against rote religious rituals. He did. He did not take light to the religious rituals which people were committing in those days. Because they were mechanical, they were rote. They trusted in the mechanical rituals in order, for the, in order for them to be saved. Now, if you believe Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you don't need them rote mechanical rituals. We see this oftentimes in religions which they count the bees, which they have to pray a certain prayer. These are rote mechanical rituals. They do not fulfill any kind of righteousness the only thing that can fulfill, the only person that can fulfill righteousness is Jesus Christ. If you cry out to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you certainly do not need any rote mechanical rituals for your relationship with God. However, the days of Jesus, people were following all kinds of rote mechanical rituals for their relationship with God. So therefore, we're coming here 
in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, where there's a discussion between Jesus and the disciples of John about a certain religious devotional act. And the value of it, and it's called fasting. What's the value of fasting? And the question is, well, we fast, disciples of John, that is, and the Pharisees fast. But how come you and your disciples or your disciples do not fast? How come Jesus' disciples do not fast while the Pharisees fast and disciples of John's fast? It seems to be the cultural norm of Jesus' days. So Jesus is going to answer the question, why do we not fast? And so to explain a little bit about, or to understand a little bit what Jesus answered, we must understand why there's fasting in general. Fasting in general, as we studied a few weeks back, is because of mourning and repentance before God. We saw this. You have to experience mourning and repentance, and fasting is an outward external action of your inward mourning, inward repentance, inward affection for the Lord. We saw this in Old Testament times where David fasted. David fasted when Jonathan and Saul died. It was obviously a very horrible time for the land of Israel, so David fasted. We saw this. David also fasted after he sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He fasted to save the life of his child. He's trying to express in mourning and affection for God, repentance before God. We saw fasting also in the land of Ninevites, the city of the Ninevites, the city of Nineveh, where Jonah the prophet went there and preached the gospel. And as a result of preaching the gospel, the city of the Nineveh, the people of the Nineveh, they believed. As they believed, they fasted. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. So they fasted before the Lord. So fasting itself is expression of one's mourning and affection before God. Certainly, I would say that John, Joel, just one more verse, Joel chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, summarizes pretty well. It says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for his gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and bounding love, he relents from sending calamity. So fasting is an act of repentance before God, saying, God, we Please relieve us or please excuse us from the punishment to which you will send us. So therefore, we're fasting to express our sorrow before the Lord. Now, John the Baptist had plenty of reason to fast. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. He was in ministry before Jesus came into the scene. Now, before Jesus came into the scene, there was no solution for the sins of this world. There's no solution. Jesus himself is the Messiah. He came to die for the sins of this world. He's the Lamb of God who came to remove, take away from the sins of, take away the sins of this world. If he's coming to take away the sins of this world, then there's plenty of reasons to rejoice as he comes. But before he comes, there's plenty of reason to fast because you're mourning, asking God to forbear the sins of this world. So John the Baptist fasted and his disciples also fasted. However, when Jesus came into the scene, there was no need to fast anymore because Jesus has come. The solution has come. The Messiah has come. And when Jesus came, John the Baptist himself believed. He said in John chapter 1, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. And he actually pointed his disciples to follow Jesus. We saw this in John chapter 1 when he actually pointed Andrew and another unnamed disciple, possibly John the disciple, the writer of the gospel, John, to follow Jesus. And Andrew went and got Peter. So Andrew and God, Peter, so he had three disciples, the first disciples of Jesus, following Jesus, who were originally disciples of John the Baptist. So they followed Jesus. John the Baptist was seeking to push people to follow Jesus. He said himself, I must decrease, but he must increase. Now, as John the Baptist was doing this, not all the disciples of John the Baptist believed unto Jesus, because if they did, they would have followed Jesus. They would have. 
But John the Baptist soon after was captured by King Herod for speaking against Herod's actions. We can talk about it later. And Herod's wife really, really did not like John the Baptist. He was arrested, eventually killed. As arrested and killed, the disciples of John were still functioning in the land of Israel. And the land of Israel, they kind of took on a movement of its own. They began to follow the tradition of John the Baptist without really understanding why the John the Baptist was doing what he was doing. John the Baptist was fasting for the coming of the Messiah. Now, the disciples of John the Baptist was kind of fasting because they were following the traditions of the John the Baptist. They following the tradition of what John the Baptist used to do. And now, because they don't understand the epics and the times have changed because the Messiah has come, they are now fasting, well, just like the Pharisees were fasting. They're fasting out of a tradition, out of a rote ritual that is not from a relationship with God. And the fasting no longer pleases God because the Messiah has come and they're fasting for another coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says, hey, you guys have missed the point. You have completely missed the point. So in verse 14, what Jesus says to them here, he actually is very, very patiently teaching them in verse 14, saying, actually in verse 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as the bridegroom is with them? Patiently teaching them. I'm the wedding groom. I'm the bridegroom. The wedding guest is here. If the bridegroom is here, there's no need for you to mourn. Teaching them that, hey, the Messiah has come. I'm here. The solution of the sins of this world is here. There's no need for you to mourn. No need for you to fast. Disciples of John's thinking that Jesus is acting out of place. While in reality, they're the ones who are acting out of place. They're the ones who do not understand that God is moving. And at times, the epics have changed. If they had a relationship with God, they would have known. So Jesus instructs them. Now it's time to celebrate. Now it's time for you to believe. It's not time for you to mourn, not time for you to wait for another Messiah. The time has come for you to believe. Believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ. I am here. But there's going to come a time, as Jesus says in verse 15, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. He's again speaking about the coming time when Jesus will be crucified on the cross and he'll be taken away from God's people. He'll be crucified, he will be he will be dying for our sins, and he will ascend to the heaven, he will resurrect, and he will be taken away from the church or separated from the church for a period of time, which is the period of time which we're in right now, and he will come again for the church. But that period of time is a time of fasting. That's a period of time where we're actually mourning an infection for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's plenty of reason for us now to mourn. But in the days of Jesus, when Jesus is there, there's no need to mourn because Jesus is right there for, with God's people. As long as he's there with God's people, it's like they're living in heaven. You're in God's presence. It's forever joy, forever peace. You shouldn't be mourning. If you had a relationship with God, you would know. Therefore, he rebukes and he instructs the disciples of John the Baptist to focus on having a relationship with God rather than just simply carrying out some rote religious rituals. And we see all kinds of rote religious rituals in our days as well. Many religions offer rote religious rituals. You, you count the bees in your hands. Somehow you have to count certain bees, certain amount of bees to kind of justify your salvation. You say certain prayers to justify your salvation. These are all rote religious rituals. Repeat them again and again. They carry no value in your salvation. But even as Christians, sometimes I find myself carrying out rote religious rituals. I'll give you one example. You know, when I was young, what I did was I, what was taught me is that I need to be reading my Bible. And reading the Bible is a really, really good spiritual discipline. You should be reading your Bible. But because reading the Bible is kind of hard, not because it's 
difficult to understand that, but because it's hard for us to prioritize reading the Bible, one person came and told me that you should follow this ritual, follow this, um, this, this method, which is called no, uh, no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. I don't know if you ever heard about it. So if you don't read your Bible, then you can't eat breakfast. So I was thinking, you know what, this is a good idea. I'm going to do that. I'm going to just kind of hold this uh, method in my mind. I'm going to follow it to the T. And if I don't read the Bible, I'm not going to eat breakfast. So sometimes I would wake up late, right, in the morning. And what would happen, I was just telling what this ritual did to me. What would happen is I would read the Bible for about 10 seconds. And I would go and eat the breakfast. And I would go rush out the door. But those 10 seconds of reading the Bible really didn't serve any benefit in my relationship with God. I did not pray, I did not worship, I did not meditate on God's word. I was simply following a religious ritual. Now, I could have come back from home, come back later and read the Bible when I have time to sit down and really, really enjoy worshiping the Lord. I don't need to do this. I don't need to hold to some kind of religious ritual, religious tradition, religious some kind of rote maintenance for my relationship with God. God loves me beyond me just carrying out some kind of rote maintenance in my spiritual discipline. See, God sees us as he sees his children. We need to approach God with actual heart of relationship, heart of love, heart of worship, and that is not defined by any other kind of religious ritual to maintain our relationship with Him. It is coming from a heart full of devotion toward God. So God loves us His children. If I were to have children of my own, I wouldn't care if they came to me with some kind of mechanical ritual. I don't want that. I want them to actually display love and affection that's coming from their own heart. Certainly God sees us in the same way. God already provided a way through Jesus Christ who restored us unto himself by dying on the cross for our sins and gave us his perfect righteousness and gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts to birthing us a desire for the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit within us for a desire for God. So utilize that desire. Let that desire flow out of you in your devotion to the Lord. You don't need to hold to any kind of rituals anymore, any kind of mechanical road motions for your relationship with God. God desires you. So therefore, offer yourself. Now, as you're offering yourself, there are going to be spiritual disciplines that you're going to live out. You're going to be praying. You might be fasting. You might be giving. But all these things are coming out of relationship with God. I can guarantee you that no other religions in this world have this kind of promise, that you will have a relationship with God. Every religion in this world tells you that you must become worthy enough by your own works so that God will accept you into his presence. But no religion in this world tells you that God doesn't care about what you do as much as he cares about what is in your heart. Christianity is the only religion, or only faith, I would even say, only, only system of belief that guarantees you having a relationship with the Lord, the God creator himself. So by this, we must recognize that Christianity or relationship with Jesus is uniquely different than any other system of beliefs in this world. Jesus Christ is uniquely different than any other faith or religions of this world. We're going to see this as our next point. So first we saw that those who follow Jesus must abandon all rote religious rituals for actual relationship with God. Second, we're going to see that relationship with God is uniquely different than any other relationship or any other religious systems of this world. Let's hear in verse 16 through 17. Verse 16. No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on the old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put in the old wineskin. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine spilled, and skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskin, so both are preserved. 
So Jesus now patiently answers the question of the disciples John the Baptist, telling him, telling them that he's uniquely different. That relationship with God is not defined by rote rituals. Now he's telling them that he's uniquely different than any other system, any other religious practices which they have seen in their own time. So he gives two illustrations to display this, that he's different than any other religious systems which John the Baptist or the Pharisees have been experiencing in their own time. The first illustration is this, the illustration of putting a brand new unstrung cloth to patch up a a torn up old clothing. It's a very much a daily application, daily life application. You and I might experience this before. You have a rip in your jeans or you have a rip in some kind of cloth and then you want to put a patch on top of it so that you can still continue to use that garment. Well, if the jean or your pair of pants is very, very thin because of use and that is why there's a hole there in the first place, you put an unshrunk cloth, say made of wool or carton, on that pair of jeans or on a pair of pants what's going to happen? That it's going to shrink, and then if your pair of pants is really thin, what's going to happen is that it's going to tear you a new one. That's what's going to happen. That's what Jesus is experiencing, or what people of Jesus' days have experienced. It's going to tear you a brand new one, tear you a bigger hole. So you never ever will put an unshrunk cloth on the old garment that's already tearing, and it's already thin, it's already about to tear again, because you would make a hole even bigger. Certainly, Jesus is compare himself to that unshrunk cloth. Jesus is saying, I simply cannot fit into your existing religious systems. The Pharisees of Jesus' days are trying to fit Jesus into a current religious system. They're, t- they're high at the top. They're in the hierarchy of the religious system. They get accolades of men. And they're seeking to, for Jesus to come alongside and, uh, and appreciate them and to support them in the current hierarchy. But Jesus is saying, I won't do that. I simply will not fit into a system. So what do we do? Jesus gives us another illustration here in verse 17 about the wine, the wineskin. And verse 17 says this, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put in fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. It's another illustration speaking about the same point. In days of Jesus, people used wineskins to preserve wine, to put wine inside the wineskin and to store them. Now, wineskin is made out of animals of skin, uh, skin of animals. It's made of goat, ox, or sheep. Whatever it is, you take the skin of the animal and you, you, you move the skin. Of course, you kill the animal. You move the skin and you shave off the hair of the animal and you turn the skin inside out and then you begin to sole up all the areas of the skin to make it tight into a little bottle, a little pouch, except for the neck. And the neck becomes a bottleneck for you to either pour out of or put one inside. Now, these wineskins are made, uh, used uh, quite a bit in the days of Israel, in, the, in Jesus' days, to store wine. And as they're used, they get stretched. The reason why they get stretched is because wine, when they're within the wineskin, when they're sealed up, begin to ferment. And fermenting causes fermenting gases. And when the gases are expanding, you also expand the wineskin. Now, wineskin was going through certain uses. As it goes through certain uses, then you will begin to expand. And as it expands, you will, not, you will lose its elasticity uh, as it expands. So if you place it under the sun and if you are using it for quite a bit of sessions for this kind of fermenting process, then begin to 
uh, the wine skin becomes become more and more brittle. And as it becomes more brittle, you, the chance of becoming cracking, uh, for the crack and all these things begin to happen. Now, if you put old wine skin, put new wine into the old wine skin, and begin to let the new wine ferment in the old wine skin, what will happen is that the new wine will begin to ferment, and it will begin to ferment to a certain degree that the gases will be more than what the old wine skin can bear. And once it exceeds that threshold, the old wine skin will burst, and therefore spilling out the wine and then ruining the wine skin. So Jesus says here is that I am like the new wine. You have an old wineskin here. Your religious system is the old wineskin. You simply cannot put me into an old religious system. I will not be compatible with it. You cannot put Jesus into any kind of old religious system. Now, we think about how does this apply to our faith. Right? It's like, am I putting Jesus into the old religious system? I think in all cultures, we put, try to put Jesus into an old religious system or old ideology. We see this in our own country. We have the American dream. The American dream basically says that if you work hard, you deserve what you get. You deserve a house, you deserve money, you deserve possession. Work hard, you deserve it. I work hard, so therefore I deserved it. And so we put Jesus into it, right, in America. You work hard, and Jesus will let you help you become rich, have a lot of possessions. That's the American dream. But if you follow Jesus, you will realize that Jesus never ever promised you that you'll ever become wealthy or have a lot of possessions. He never promised that. He just says, follow me. Follow me. And you might even face persecution in the process. It's kind of abstract idea for us to understand, but we can picture it also in other countries. Other countries, they don't struggle with the American dream, but they actually do put Jesus next to a, next to a statue. If you speak to a Hindu, I have missionary friends who are missionaries in India. Preaching the gospel in India is quite difficult because you preach Jesus, they will say, Jesus? Sure, I'll add Jesus to my repertoire of gods. What does he look like? Give me a statue of him. I'll put him next to Buddha, Shiva, Vishnu. And you see a picture, see a statue of Jesus right next to it. If you ever go to a foreigner's house, you might see this. Now, is Jesus there? No. Because Jesus himself will not share place with any other gods in this world. He will not share place with any other gods. So you see Jesus Christ placed under or placed next to any other gods of this world, you can guarantee that Jesus is not there. There's no presence of God there. In fact, it's the only demonic presence that's there. So Jesus alone is God. You simply cannot fit Jesus into an existing system. You must believe Jesus, abandon all, and follow him. Embrace Jesus Christ as a system of faith in itself without mixing him in with any other system in this world. That's called syncretism. American syncretism is the American dream. Mixing Jesus with the American dream. Jesus calling you to follow him with all your life, forsaking all. That is different from the American dream. You simply cannot mix Jesus with anything else. Jesus says here, I am the only God. There's no one like him. No one like me. This, he says this, or God himself says this in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. No one can come to the Father except by the Lord Jesus Christ. He declares himself to be the only way. There's no other way. You simply cannot mix Jesus Christ within any other religious system. Not all roads lead to Rome. Okay? Not all roads lead to Rome. There's only one road to God. In fact, the more that you're progressing in any other religious system, 
the more you're progressing against the system that Jesus has set up. Every other system in this world teaches you that by your works you shall receive salvation. So you can work really, really hard to make yourself worthy for salvation. But by you working really hard to make yourself worthy of salvation, you're working against the system that Jesus has set up, which he says, I will give you salvation by grace and mercy alone. Come to me, recognize that you're a sinner, and I will do the work for you. That's the system that Jesus has set up. So therefore, we believe the Lord Jesus Christ today as the way of salvation, then we must believe that he alone is our righteousness. We abandon all kinds of earthly ways for our own righteousness, for our own justification. But we come to Christ and say, I am not worthy, you're worthy. Thank you for putting your righteousness into my life. I receive it by faith and faith alone. And when we actually do that, then we get to rest. We get to rest in our lives, we get the rest before the Lord because we no longer have to work for our salvation. We get to have joy knowing that we have salvation. We don't have to keep the dishes spinning anymore. We don't have to do that anymore. We get to have salvation. And that salvation actually begins now in our lives because God promises that he's going to take care of us. He's going to protect us. He's going to guard us until the day in which we see him again. So we don't ever, ever have to keep the dishes spinning anymore. We don't have to work so hard that we think that our survival depends on our good works. It really doesn't. Our survival actually depends on the grace of God. If we come to God asking God for grace and mercy, He will give us grace and mercy for our lives, the grace and mercy we need to continue to serve Him and be joyful in Him. And such relationship is a gift from God. It's a gift from God to be able to live in such joy, such peace, knowing that God is with us every step of the way. He saved us in the beginning. He will continue to save us in this world. He saved us in eternity. And that kind of rest means that we get to have joy. We get to have peace. We don't have to keep working so hard and try to sustain ourselves in this world. We get to relax and rest. Relax. It's a joy to relax. And once you have relaxed, once you have rested, then you can begin to think about what God has called you to do in this world because God has called you to work. God's not saying, hey, sit around and don't work. No, he wants you to work. He wants you to give. He wants you to serve. He wants you to pray. He wants you to fast. He wants you to uh, read your Bible. He wants you to come to church. He wants you to work. He wants you to serve out of a heart that is from a relationship with him. But if you do serve God from a heart that's a relationship with him, then you get to do it from joy. And that kind of joy actually translates to our faces. Imagine, if you have to serve in order to please other people, in order to please God, then you won't be as joyful. If you had to give in order for your salvation to be made available to you, then you won't be joyful in doing it because you'll be complaining all the way. But if you know that you have been given every spiritual blessing in this world, now you get to give out of the abundance of your joy in your heart, then that's from a different motivation. That is a different motivation. That motivation will give you joy, give you peace. And when other people actually see the joy in your heart, they would like to be next to you. They will actually want to be your friend. So many people in our church today just have a grumbling face. Oh, I have to do this. I have to serve. If I don't serve, no one will do it. The church will fall apart. Believe me, the church will not fall apart. Take a step away. This church has been around for 115 years. Switch hands so many times. You will still be here even if you're not here. Believe me. You will be here. Take a step away. Get your heart right with the Lord. Then come back and serve. Worship Him. Worship Him. Know that He's got you. Don't worry. Chill. And then out of that heart of resting God, then come back and serve Him from a joyful heart. And when other people see that you have a joyful heart, they would like to be next to you. When unbelievers see that you have a joyful heart, they would know that your faith is real. See, they won't have the, they want to have the joy that you also have. 
They want to have the joy that you also have. By you living out the joyful heart, serving the Lord, you give people hope that their lives can also change as yours have changed. When they hear the gospel, they really, really actually want to have Jesus Christ for their own lives because they can see him working in your life. So Jesus is calling us to follow him and those who follow Jesus, we don't need to follow any kind of rote religious rituals, any kind of mechanical repetitive rituals. We don't need to do that. We can just follow him from the relationships given to us by Jesus Christ. And second, we must recognize that Jesus Christ is uniquely different than any other religious systems of this world. God is moving. Okay? God is moving. So therefore, we must move with him. You must be continually aware what God is doing in your life. Certainly, I experienced that this week. I mean, I don't expect my house you know, to be a fifth of the house to be knocked down. I mean, literally, walls are knocked down my house. They're only left with wooden beams. can't live there. I want to go back to live in my house. I do, because my house provides a lot of stability for my home, for my own life. Without stability, without that kind of routine, it's easy for me to get frustrated. It's easy for me to get short with people. I mean, this week I was short with my wife. My wife can get short with me. I can, we can all be short with our kids and just get angry at each other because we don't have the stability of that routine. But you know what? When God is moving, a lot of times that means that we cannot be a routine. You understand? When God is moving, you're going to follow him. A lot of times you have to move out of the routine. God is never going to stay in your routine. He's going to move. And if, you, if he's moving, you got to follow. Even the means that you have to abandon the old routine, the old things that you're used to, to do something that you're not used to, which is now we're, gonna, we're living our parents. And there's all kinds of adjustments you got to do. But if you know that God's with you every step of the way, then that's okay. That's okay. Because God's going to take care of you. God's going to protect you. God's going to show you more himself in that new season of your life. So embrace it. Embrace that new season for God's glory, knowing that he's with you every step of the way. With that, I leave you to think about it, and we'll pray. Our Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for today that we get to see Jesus as a new wine. He is the new wine of our lives because we can never, ever corner him as an old routine. Lord, we can never, ever corner Jesus into a certain process certain mechanical world ritual because he is God. So Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are God of our lives, that you're forever moving and our role is to follow you wherever you will go. We love you, Lord. Give us grace to hear from you this week. Let us spend time in prayer, in fasting even, to hear from you, God, from the relationship which we have with you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins to provide a way for us, the access for us to God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.